0: Hello everyone, this is an interview episode of the History of Egypt podcast. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Ann Warden. Dr. Warden is the Associate Professor of Art History and Archaeology at Roanoke College, Virginia, in the United States. On top of that, she is the Director for a Significant Archaeological Site, leading excavations at Qom el-Hissin, an ancient community in Egypt's Delta region. Her research is informative and enlightening, and Dr. Warden has significantly expanded my understanding of an ancient society and its economy. I have used her work repeatedly throughout the podcast, and I'm excited to talk to her today. Dr. Warden takes an interesting angle on Egyptian society. Her work focuses on how people made and distributed different goods. Ceramic pots, in particular, give an insight to the day-to-day workings of these communities. When the Egyptians were placing bread, beer, fruit, vegetables, oils, wine, and all good things into ceramic pots, it means that these items give us a thorough record of ancient behaviours, if only we can decipher them. Fortunately, Dr. Warden is here to uncover the tiny details, overlooked by many, which can reveal ancient lives and their world. That's enough from me. On to the interview. Allow me to introduce Dr. Leslie Ann Warden, Associate Professor of Art History and Archaeology. Leslie, welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, and thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm quite excited we actually are able to do this.
0: We finally got there. <laughs> We've talked it about it for so long. Four years, but we got there. <laughs> okay, so. Oh, side question: Would you prefer to me prefer me to refer to you as Dr. Warden or Leslie?
1: Oh God, just call me Leslie. It's
0: fine. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So, Leslie, you've devoted most of your career so far to the study of economic and social questions during the third millennium BCE. Now, most people know this as the age of pyramids and you know big famous names like Jose and Khufu and Khafre but you take a different approach and sort of look beyond the monuments to um, humbler sort of smaller background questions. How would you describe your focus and research to those not familiar with these small-scale aspects of Old Kingdom society? Like if you were at a cocktail party meeting new people, how would you pitch your scholarship?
1: Oh, gosh, I normally start very spuriously sort of ridiculously but by saying pharaohs bore me i mean they're cool they're <laughs> great there's really beautiful stuff yep sure but i'm inherently just so interested in people's lives I'm a, I'm a people person i just enjoy hanging out with folks and i enjoy how people interact and social relationships I tend to think that our lives are really interesting, and I don't see any reason why that would have been different in the past. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where I've always wanted to go. I've always wanted to understand sort of what an average and non-royal ancient Egyptian, what their life would have been like, what it truly would have been like to be an Egyptian outside of just sort of the political and religious structures. Sure. And so that's what brought me to economy because economy ends up tying everybody together. It ties the mm. political, or excuse me, the royal house to the non-royals, and actually gives me a way to look at how your average person might be subverting the power of the royal house or might be able to mm. establish their own power by by looking at economic structures. So that's sort of how I came back to that. Mm. So my pitches that were cool, and I promise non-Royal ancient Egyptians also very interesting
0: (laughs) very good Um, so yeah okay so economics are a major part of every society and let's just say human society as a concept and whether we're aware of them or not economic questions affect even the smallest human needs and considerations so on a day-to-day basis based on your research What might the average ancient Egyptian need to meet their daily requirements? And where did those various goods like food or tools come from in an economic sense?
1: Uh, Oh, I love that you said tools too, right? Because there's a lot of good research coming out on that. So your average ancient Egyptian needs the same thing that every human being in the world has always needed since we've, we started evolving. And food and shelter are really your big ones, right? Mm. And so when it comes to shelter, I, I work in settlements. That's where I'm really interested. So give me houses, mm-hmm. give me people's dress and linen becomes a major thing that I think we entirely ignore very often because it doesn't exist in the archaeological record. Uh, for the mm. most part, there are wonderful examples that we could pull, but as a giant category of evidence, not so much. Sure. Um, and then when we turn to the food, the average ancient Egyptian is going to be eating a lot of legumes, a lot of veg, a lot of grain-based food. It's so bread, very dominant, probably types of gruels, And then they're going to drink a lot of beer Mm. and that latter part I'm I'm fascinated by I've been doing a lot of work with beer and so that's something that people are drinking at every level of society you're feeding your kids Mm. it which horrifies my students when I tell them that like the idea that a two year old's drinking beer but the Mm. alcohol is very different it's actually Mm. sort of something that's on my but bothering me at the moment frankly Um, really. Yeah, well, think about it for a second. Fermentation for beer takes a couple of weeks minimum for even something that's low ABV. If you go into a modern brewery, they, they do their malt, they do all of their process, and then they, it has to sit aside for the yeasts to consume the sugars, and yeasts poop out alcohols. And then they mm-hmm. that's how fermentation okay. happens, right? Alcohol and CO2. Mm-hmm. The ancient Egyptians are working in pottery vessels, they're not leaving it there for a couple of weeks. How fermented is this thing? Or are we just talking mm. about a malt beverage? And we've been treating it as if it's alcoholic for pretty much the most of Egyptian scholarship. I'm wondering, mm. and we'll be dealing with this through experimental work in March, how alcoholic it is. And I'm sorry, I'm going so off on a tangent, Dominic. I've no,
0: please honest. do. We're happy with tangents here.
1: So my tangent is alcohol. And mm. I don't think, I really truly don't, I'm beginning to wonder. Um, if it was alcoholic or not, and if we just mm. drink something malty. I mean, my students recreated ancient Egyptian beer and it was a, it was disgusting. Oh, my God. And I don't know who I should blame it on. The the uh, ancient Egyptians or the undergraduates of Roanoke College. Maybe it's a cosmic mix of the two. But it was <laughs> so disgusting that even I who will drink, I will do much of anything. I'm a pretty trepidation sort of woman. like I will do things. But at the end of it I'm like guys you do not have to drink this <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's all look at it let's smell it let's observe it let's look at its color but it, it just the conditions are way not perfect I understand that it's not a one-to-one experiment but it's not a stable beverage so it could can't you
0: give hurt. us a vague description of what it tasted like
1: not using swear words
0: yes preferably
1: um, disgusting heavy Uh okay,
0: yeah, yeah, sort it's of, like, kind of a, like sour,
1: yes, but it's not the sour that's so I don't know what's trendy in New Zealand right now, but sours are very in in the United States, okay, but it took that and it rounded the corner into horrid, right, and I then see. it got cloudier over time instead of clarifying. Hmm. And some of that might have been the experimental method that my students used. They covered the inside of their pots with mud, which actually would have been how the ancient Egyptians did it. Hmm. But that mud certainly did not help matters. Let's put it that way. <laughs> did not make things tasty and delicious. So, so,
0: okay. So they're probably not fermenting these beers for weeks at a time, considering okay. the quantities that they're consuming. Yeah. So, and how. So far, how how would how would you imagine that they're organizing the production of beer? Is it small households, or are there large breweries operating at the time?
1: I think this changes over time, and mm-hmm. we see that. And, the, and sort of, let me segue into the archaeological record because that's really where we need to appeal for this evidence, okay. right? And so ancient Egyptian beer as well as its bread. And those are the key fundamentals that I study. Though for economy, Mm -hmm. you can also do a lot with flint tools. And Elizabeth Hart has done some really excellent work on that. Uh, But to to come back to the pottery. And so I look at beer jars and bread molds and other Mm -hmm. utilitarian wares in the Egyptian record to figure out how goods were moving and sort of quantities and distance and things like that. And so in the old kingdom, the bulk of the ceramic record in any settlement site is beer jars and bread molds. And even if you Mm -hmm. go to a necropolis site, beer jars Mm -hmm. and bread molds also dominate. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's it's. It's, it's amazing. It's a thing of wonder, frankly, when you go to the field. Because you're just like, I can identify a huge percentage of your record. And it's just these two forms. And you're just throwing them over your shoulder. Or at least that's been the temptation because they're so recognizable. But they, they show a lot of difference uh, that I've seen in my work. Anyway, to come back to it. So in the Old Kingdom, tremendous amounts of beer are clearly being processed and moved. And they're being placed in these recognizable forms. I want you to think of and you you have a large audience transcending different continents so in the united states i would give a good example of just a milk gallon it's boring Mm -hmm. it's ubiquitous it's entirely recognizable if you see orange juice put into that you're like why are they using a milk carton to put orange juice that's weird (laughs) and you immediately know they're transcending some cultural boundary they're doing something wrong Mm. and um for the ancient egyptians that's certainly how the old kingdom beer jar works it could do a few other things but for the most part it's beer it's beer it's beer it's beer and everyone can recognize it and that makes it a mm-hmm. commodity that's really easy to move right because i can recognize it i know what i'm getting i can see the size and now i can bargain with whoever I, i'm interacting with so i think that what's happening in the old kingdom in terms of production is that production of beer is happening at huge scales and i think it's probably happening outside of the house. Now, this mm-hmm. is where we don't have good old kingdom archaeological evidence slash mm-hmm. any good old kingdom evidence. But if we turn to earlier evidence coming out of Hierapolis, we certainly have huge beer vats in a industrial complex being used to manufacture mm-hmm. the beer. So, not you know, it's not a great parallel because it is so much earlier, but. The, the pottery would suggest that we should be looking for something large scale because this is a large scale cultural phenomenon that's instantly recognizable to every Egyptian. Mm-hmm. What I find mind-boggling is that this thing is so ubiquitous until suddenly it's not.
0: Mm, okay.
1: And that happens at about the end of the 6th dynasty.
0: Right. And at so that, suddenly the, that particular type of beer jar fades away? Poof.
1: Um, Fade Hmm. is even a strong word. It happens, I mean, it does fade, but it also happens pretty quickly. And it happens differently in settlements and in necropolis sites. Hmm. And so settlements, it's just by late six, it's gone by, in cemeteries, it morphs, it changes, it will hang out through the early first intermediate period, uh, presumably as part of ritual, which itself is more conservative, right?
0: It tends to linger on a bit longer.
1: Exactly. Versus daily life where you're just responding to sort of current needs and pressures. Sure. And so it's gone from settlements and there's nothing that replaces it. This is the mind-boggling part, something that was so ubiquitous, so instantly mm. recognizable. It was, you know, part of the form of Egyptian life. It, it's, it's a standard type that becomes a way that the Egyptians are thinking materially, and to have it gone and to have it replaced by nothing else means that the mm. Egyptians are no longer thinking of beer in the same way. Right. Now, it doesn't mean they're not so, drinking
0: beer. Sure. So I guess this is a difficult question to answer without more settlement evidence, mm-hmm. but does um, do you suspect that production is shrinking, or is it just that they're transporting it differently or they've, they're they organizing it differently.
1: Can I say all of the above? Though, yeah, fair enough. Though I don't actually, instead of saying t- production is shrinking, shall we say production is shifting? I sure. think the scale of production, people are still producing it probably in the same amounts or probably consuming beer just as much as they always have. And we know it continues to be an important part of the ritual life of ancient Egyptians, just a lot um, and it it's it will reappear it appears in text. We know they're drinking it, but mm. I think what's happening is the production of it shifts to the house, or at least okay. to smaller scale production areas. So they a place is producing less, but your average person perhaps is consuming the same amount. That I'm I'm hazy on. Okay, because I you know so I maybe don't have a of... Egyptian to talk to.
0: Right. So maybe instead of like a big factory producing 100 jars, you have 20 houses each producing two or three jars. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps producing for their
1: need or for the need of their extended
0: community. Plenty of asterisks of these are all preliminary ideas. Further research is needed.
1: Exactly. And it's almost entirely based on the ceramic record because we do not have a lot of industrial areas for for these sites. And I'm, I'm generally looking at the old through the Middle Kingdom And, you know, there's so much evidence that we don't
0: have. So speaking of, say, the end of the Sixth Dynasty and the possible shifting of production scales or away from large factories to households, with caveats, that sort of ties into my next question, which is that traditionally many Egyptologists, especially those coming out of the European and English tradition, have tended to see ancient Egyptian economies as a sort of royal monopoly situation with the crown or royal household supposedly dominating huge sectors of the the social economy. But your research, past and present, has shown some very different realities when we actually dig into the soil, literally digging in. Based on your work so far, what kinds of relationships do we actually see in the archaeological record how do egyptian craft workers relate to one another how do they organize themselves and how does the evidence actually show this
1: okay. so i'm going to break this into two parts i'm going to break this into it. the the movement of of beer and bread and how that sort of worked in a village economy setting or a bartering economy setting and then that craftsman Mm -hmm. point is actually slightly different right and so the production of of the organization of craft labor and potters particularly becomes a separate issue so i'm going to break it up if
0: you don't mind that's fine well i can i can totally um, edit the audio to shift it into two separate questions so Perfect. feel free to do oh, that
1: find that you don't like one of them and happily delete <laughs>
0: so please feel free All my right. integrity is hurt
1: uh, no this is your podcast dude I mean don't make me say what I'm not saying but <laughs> if you decide that fair certain enough. flow is necessary you decide if certain flow is necessary
0: fair um, enough and it,
1: yeah. but if I find out that you made me say that ancient aliens did it we're going to have a conversation you and I
0: uh, you got me. My entire <laughs> shtick here is to make people do that, and the my, best part is you just volunteered that information yourself, so I oh can no! just do some crafty editing. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, I live to serve. Okay. Yeah.
0: The, All buzz, right, the Buzzfeed headlines will be out tomorrow.
1: Oh my god, I'll be in such trouble. I'll be my my husband will <laughs> repost on Twitter. This will be great. <laughs> All right, but let's let's come to it, shall we? So let's let's sure. talk about. Um, Beer and how that helps us understand economic networks in ancient Egypt, because what we know about beer, and this comes from the textual record particularly, is that your average la- our labor in the Egyptian Old Kingdom was paid in bread and beer, and we are told this through the textual record. They're also paid in linen, and I would love mm-hmm. to track down linen, but please reference my earlier comment about it's important, but it's not a ubiquitous enough find to really do anything with at this scale right because you you need mm-hmm. large-scale evidence to start making these assertions mm-hmm. and so if there being if labor is being paid for bread and beer the really nice thing is that we know labor from all scales of society is being paid in bread and beer so it's not just pharaoh who's paying in bread and beer but we know that there is a private purse again documented in the textual record that there's a private person individual people will have their own wealth and they use that to pay labor in bread and beer and we can extrapolate that that's happening lower down the economic rungs as well so great everybody's exchanging bread and beer i can now start making assertions about or potentially make assertions about multiple tiers of the of the economic hierarchy instead of just being forced to talk about the royal house Um, and that's Mm -hmm. why we've Let me step back. The reason we've always thought, or as you point out, really the European tradition, which spans into the United States and branches out there, too, um, has has embraced this idea of the royal house dictating the economy, is that text will often tell you royal house dictates the economy because Mm -hmm. the text that we have comes from the royal house. It's kind Mm -hmm. of if you analyze sources, it becomes a self-defeating. Prospect, you know that you're you're looking at only a limited number of sources. They tell you a limited number of things. We can't say anything bigger um, to assume that what they don't talk about doesn't exist is a fallacy. Mm -hmm. And so turning to the archaeological record, so this the archaeological record contains a vast amount of beer jars and bread bones, and we know that bread and beer are being paid for labor across Egypt and across social classes so now this becomes an archaeological question because i can actually trace that commodity that the texts tell me is being used for this this uh, payment of labor that they tell me is key for the economy so this is great and now i can talk quantitatively Mm -hmm. if we remember too that beer and bread are both the product of grain and that grain is ultimately the backbone of the egyptian economy we have to remember that grain, if we're assuming a centralized economy, which let's, let's start out assuming, since that's what scholarship has us working with, or at least had us working with when I started my work. If we assume a centrally controlled economy, we assume that Pharaoh king at this time, that the king is able to actually properly control the grain that has been grown throughout Egypt. Mm-hmm. and that he is able to control its manufacture into beer and its distribution because he would need to control economic exchange which means he'd have to control all of those steps. Mm-hmm. So if we are if we look at the volume of beer jars and bread molds we're essentially looking at then value if you will a larger beer jar has greater value if you think of what Value really is ultimately it's kilocalories, it's the ability to mm-hmm. drink something and survive, it's that basic need for food and shelter. So, mm-hmm. a larger jar has more cake cows, it has more food for you, it is inherently more valuable, and the same is true of bread molds. And so, as a result, what I w- ended up doing is looking at the volumes of beer jars and bread molds with the understanding that if we're looking at a centralized economy that is being controlled entirely by the top down, what we're going to, what we should expect to find is that beer jars and bread molds are specifically scaled and are uh, standardized across the country. Pharaoh would have to do that because he has to be able to control the commodity as it's being distributed. Because there's really only X amount of grain. And so Mm -hmm. we would have to be able to control those processes. So I'm going to be using volume as a proxy for them. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, this required that I draw the figures for volumes of beer jars and bread molds from sites across the country. And assemble them and figure out what's called the coefficient of variation, which tells you how f- close to or far away from standardized a, um, an object is. And you can use this for mm-hmm. a lot of different measures of standardization. Are you looking at mass? Are you looking at weight? But in this case, I'm looking at volume. And as I ran those numbers, what became really clear was that there is no standardization of volume. There's no control or restriction of vol or major restriction of volume at any point in Old Kingdom history.
0: So but, there's no there's no baseline beer jar that is no. consistent?
1: No. There's no consistency yeah. in the record. So it'd be like walking into your nearest convenience store and instead of seeing your standard what's pint of beer bottle of or, coke or something yeah your bottle of coke or your bottle of beer suddenly you walk in and they're just all ranging mm-hmm. and the value ranges as well and there's a lot of other things i'm not able to measure recipe mm-hmm. right producer and so that adds additional variability to this scene and so the idea Which had been floated out there, that vessels were standardized because they were used as a standard wage. And it was like, you're getting paid one beer jar, here's one beer jar. No arguing, you would just accept that you are getting the right thing, the correct thing, the standard thing. -hmm. Immediately has to be turned on its head. There is no Mm -hmm. way you're going to walk up as your average ancient Egyptian and be handed a small beer jar, while the guy next to you is handed a big beer jar, and a conversation (laughs) won't happen at the very minimum. Uh, We're not talking about robots who are serving under a pharaoh and are like, you know, um, go. Thank you for whatever you did for me. I'm just going to accept it unquestionably. There's, mm. And it's not like Pharaoh could actually control production in that, in that framework. So sure. let, me, let, me, let me come back because I'm not sure I expressed that very well. What's happening now is that we're seeing tremendous variability in the record and its variability in beer jars and in bread bowls, so both of our basic commodities, that mm. by extension shows that the state is not controlling their distribution or movement. This is mm. further emphasized by the fact that all of that pottery is ma- made locally. And mm-hmm. that the styles and the sizes of rims and whatnot all vary across the board, across Egypt. What mm-hmm. I also found interesting is that the standardization never, ever occurred. It didn't occur by period. It didn't occur by place. I could break it down in some cases, such as West Saara <laughs> with Tojozuska's work. And even there, it didn't even break down by specific type in sub range. She's gotten down really <laughs> fine dividing, and it just never standardizes.
0: So no no uh, local overseer, no head potter yeah. that we can see ever managed to f- – ever managed to get all of their workers producing the same pot repeatedly
1: exactly and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up no local organization because really that would have been the second tier hypothesis right the first is mm. that the state is controlling the whole economy and therefore we should look for standardization because you have to control the movement of a limited good mm. and if he is not well then you're looking for authorities because it's, or it's 2020 and we're raised in the West, we're raised with governments that are, God, we're, we're raised in a world where governments are quite strong. And so you're mm. looking for the authority, you're looking for the regulatory, uh, regulatory system. And so my next thought was, okay, well let's let's look at the site and see where standardization is. Nope, no standardization even at the level of a site, even periods mm. within a site, even subtypes within a site. Great, so no local authority either. So this mm. leaves us to suddenly look for individual autonomy, mm-hmm. which is both incredibly hard to see in the archaeological record, but when, when, you, when I finally came to this moment, it became really exciting because those numbers, the diversity and confusion in the standardization values and the CV values, the range and form and size suddenly make sense if you think about ancient Egyptians as autonomous actors who are Uh able to barter with each other and determine value themselves. So instead of being told Pharaoh has said this one jar is enough. You will take it and like it. Mm. We open up the possibility. And again, I haven't met an ancient Egyptian yet, so I can't tell you that this is a guarantee, (laughs) but (laughs) we open up the possibility at least for an ancient Egyptian to have had their own agency to mm. say, you know what? No, no. Or to have developed relationships with specific potters mm-hmm. that they enjoyed working with or specific people that they knew that they were going to get paid from where they, they created a relationship where they knew what to expect from that, which was still mm. variable from what the next guy over was expecting from his patrons and so it just it opens a lot of doors for a much more fluid system yes and and i I, i'd like to be clear here i don't see this being a i don't see all of ancient egypt being established on a barter system i'm not trying to suggest that the royal house has no power because that would be ridiculous Mm -hmm. to suggest right Mm -hmm. you don't build (laughs) pyramids with no power sure but I want to suggest that they have power within a sphere, but that doesn't mm. negate the power of provincial Egyptians, of mm-hmm. non-royal Egyptians, to be able to dictate their own terms in some cases and have real economic authority.
0: Sure. I guess it says that difference between, yes, the state can make demands for some things, but then there are also just some things such as maybe production of pottery that they're simply not interested in doesn't it doesn't concern them fundamentally there's not there's no pressing need for the crown to demand standard pots they're more interested in just bring us a thousand jars that we can use for this settlement
1: yeah yeah because there's a trick too the state in places where we know the state has very real authority over people's lives. And in this moment, I'm deliberately referring to Hytokarab and the work of Mark Mm -hmm. Lehner and Anna Vizinska. When we look at their work, we know that Hytokarab is the home of the pyramid builders. It goes without saying, and with every papyri we find from the 5th dynasty onwards, we know those sorts of sites are really dictated um, by the state and that the state has economic authority over them. And yet when we mm. look at beer jars and bread molds from them, they're no more regulated at all. Yeah. Like The state seems to have accepted that there is this really fluid network of beer and bread payments that they're just not going to futz with. They, they will give the commodities... <laughs> for it, they'll make sure that there's stuff for it, but the way that those individual payments happen, the negotiations, that's up to the headman, that's up to whoever's there. There's no need to dictate it. The state just wants to make sure its pyramid is built, its mining mm-hmm. projects are done, they get what trade they need to do. There's actually a much more limited sphere of royal power than is generally anticipated in an ancient oh, any course. Any reading that you ever do on ancient Egypt where Pharaoh is the central figure. Now suddenly, Pharaoh mm. is a much smaller figure, and the society around him really grows to take up at the
0: least, space. at least economically.
1: At least Astrid's economically, was. and that's that's a fair mm. point. I, ideologically, the Pharaoh has a huge, the the king has a huge role. There, there can be no.
0: I'm also just thinking of this sort of implicit power of coercion, <laughs> which doesn't necessarily show up archaeologically but yeah you're right
1: and i think that that definitely links to his ideological power too right how is he able to coerce you well you're Mm -hmm. in the old kingdom you're pretty convinced he's a god and that's that's you don't Mm -hmm. say no to that you don't fudge that so
0: and if you're not convinced he has a giant mace oh is it
1: a giant mace yes and then he has yeah. a, a network of people under him who are, you know, by the late Sixth Dynasty is married into the family in some cases. But even earlier, who he is appointed to roles and they, they have they have land and are uh, they have titles over provinces. They have land that they own and manners that they own in provinces. People have some touch into the royal house. They have some sense of pharaoh. But I guess what I'm suggesting is that on the day to day, yeah, eh, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> that he's there, but he's not. He's not the defining feature of Egyptian culture, or of the Egyptian day to day life.
0: As you can see, Doctor Warden is an insightful and thoughtful Egyptologist, tackling questions we didn't know we had to find answers that we desperately needed. If you're interested, Dr. Warden's 2013 book, Pottery and Economy in Old Kingdom Egypt, is the sort of book which leaves you with a whole new understanding and appreciation of an ancient society. The book is available online via Google Books, where you can preview a few chapters and get a sense of how deep these investigations go. I highly recommend it. Link in the episode description. Okay, let's get that advertising break out of the way so that we can enjoy some uninterrupted conversation. See you in a moment.
1: Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex,
0: and non-binary people like in the ancient world?
1: We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And now, back to our discussion with Leslie Ann Warden on topics of economic interest, specifically how the ancients approached the distribution and production of various goods, and what these things mean for our understanding of their society. Actually, that uh, reminds me of the sort of one thought I had is that you mentioned the 5th dynasty papyri, which I dug quite deeply into for my masters. And it occurs to me that the the main, let's say, terminology that they do seem to be interested in for assessing things is not so much volume but quality the abu se papyri are far more likely to reference like linen of excellent quality than linen of mm-hmm. 10 pallets worth i wonder if that's um, it probably doesn't you know come in too closely with beer because it's hard to measure but you know it's the sort of idea of they're not likely to well it's a it's a big task to figure out a standardized way of producing pottery but it's relatively more simple to say yes that's good quality product you know that's a that's a tasty beer or that's a good that's a good weave
1: yeah and i but i think it's easier to tell that with with um, yes. linen because the linen comes you can out of just look bolts, at it. right and you, you you do what you do in any good fabric store nowadays you immediately reach mm-hmm. your hand out and you finger it so you're going to see that i don't know how much you are going to figure out if there's good beer or bad beer i've never seen beer described as particularly tasty mm. wonderful beer or whatnot uh, though there are different certainly different
0: i kind of hope no one's sticking their fingers into the beer
1: so i it's, you would hope or not all right like let me take a sip Is that good yeah, I, mean, oh. I, I think
0: i think to oh, the actually no now that wine. i think about the quality tends to shop with wine not with beer they definitely yes and why yeah, not much later um late middle kingdom new kingdom but yeah, not with beer. I mean, I guess beer is just beer's beer, it's the bread and butter thing. I,
1: I I think it truly is. Beer is beer and it's so ubiquitous. This is this is a moment where I think we just need to step back and think about just the, the people behind this. Think about the ancient Egyptians as folk and think about how much manpower is required to do this, right? Cuz you have to have people making pots. And those those are potters. That's what they do. That is all they do. And then that industry has to be connected somehow to the Mm -hmm. brewing industry, which itself has to be separately connected to the farmers and grain Mm -hmm. storage, which might be the same, might be different things, depending. God knows we also don't have. Uh, For the Old Kingdom, we have silos, but silos are really hard to figure out because they are also used for storing pots of things. So I can't look at a silo and say, this means X amount of grain was stored there. That math doesn't hold up, um, certainly at this period. And so now we have what we have the potters we have the brewers and we have the the farmers or stores we have the bakers probably nearby so we have three or four industries that are really intimately tied together to feed a population that's roughly in the old kingdom estimates tend to be somewhere Mm -hmm. around two million people so um, for for people listening from America, that's the state of West Virginia, where I used to teach, I always like to tell my students that that your whole state, that is how many (laughs) Egyptians existed. And so it it means that most people are there's going to be a tremendous, tremendous number of people involved in these industries. And there's going to be a lot of movement of goods. And there's going to be a lot of points to measure and mismeasure, there's going to be accounts that can be taken, that are going to be probably within that one industry so being kept by one node of it but not necessarily transferred to the other there's going to be waste at every single Mm -hmm. one of these stages there's going to be apprentices working under them children almost certainly running in and out doing odd tasks deep tight control it's not that it can't be done i just don't think the old kingdom state was invested in it because they didn't have to sure And so it's going to run without them having to worry too much about that. And they can put their focus on organizing other things like, again, expeditions, pyramid building, etc.
0: Okay, so what first drew you to ancient Egypt as a personal interest? And then what convinced you to dive into it as a career? Uh,
1: can Can I actually flip this on you? Were you a kid when you decided that this is what you wanted to do?
0: I was a kid when I got interested in it, um, but I, but when I, by the time I became an undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a filmmaker.
1: Go, oh, okay. And then I,
0: and then I pivoted to ancient history when I realized it was just a bit more to me, to my talents. Sure. Yeah.
1: Sure. So it came back to the fold, if you will.
0: <laughs> Pretty quickly, yeah. But I mean, it was it was more a case of like I thought I wanted to do one career and keep. Ancient Egypt as a personal interest, and then I just flipped those. Sure. So for you, it was childhood.
1: Oh, it was childhood. I mean, most people. That's why I asked you because every time I talk to people about it, it seems like most of us decide when we're kids, Um, which means that frankly, every time I have one of my students walk in, a brand new freshman, and she or he says, "Oh, I'd really like to be an Egyptologist." I take them dead seriously. 90% hmm. of them, 95% of them will change their minds or should change their minds because, you know, there are other sure. things in life. Uh, yep. But, though, don't, the few don't that Don't Tell hold my on, audience that. There are. Audience. My, my audience is, is not allowed best... to
0: know there's other stuff.
1: There's not other stuff. This is the best thing ever. Follow Dominic's <laughs> podcast, download every single one. Be Dupont. Thank you.
0: Don't tell them about the outside world. Gosh,
1: there's no outside world. We're a cult, and yeah. therefore, there's no outside world. <laughs> no, I mean, the, okay. there are the ones who survive, and I see this sort of in the classroom. The ones who get through four years and really decide to go on—they—they they wanted, they knew when they were kids, for the most part. I, I mm. and but very few sort of are able to get all the way through. And so I was, I was. In sixth grade, which in the US is around 11 or 12 years old. Okay. And this is sort of the conventional time that I, I give when I'm telling this story. And I was in a sort of the special gifted kids class. And my instructor, whose name was, kid you not, Mr. Flinders. And <laughs> Mr. Flinders, shout out. If you're listening to this, Mr. Flinders, thank you so much. Thank you. He decided that he was going to teach a whole semester to sixth graders about ancient Egypt, like a whole semester. Wow. And so we just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And by the end of it, I'm like, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. And all my little friends are like, you're what? <laughs> and I just, I clung to it the whole, all my time, um, K through, or sixth grade on through high school. I said, this is what I wanted to do. I did a lot of independent reading. And... I guess what convinced me to dive into it as a career is that I don't know. I knew that chances were always bad if the odds were long, if you will. Sure. And people would ask me how I was going to get a job, and I would make very spurious remarks about how a professor would have to die, and I would have to be in very close proximity with my CV in order to at least be considered. (laughs) (laughs) And I I knew, I knew. Um, But I think – I just always, I had a passion for it and I have a knack for it Mm -hmm. and the fieldwork. I love the fieldwork aspect. I love being out working with materials. I really enjoy getting my hands dirty, which makes me a bad historian because I I can't just be stuck with books as much as I love them. I want to get my hands on material evidence. But yeah, so that's what happened. And it was pharaohs that drew me in, you know, pharaohs and gods, the same stuff that I think ignites most kids. And here I am studying ugly pottery from your average person. But, hey, it worked out.
0: Fair enough. Okay, so um, this might be pretty connected, but if you, if you had to look back at your sort of your undergraduate, postgraduate, and maybe um, the very first years of your career – is there, is there anything that stands out as maybe being like, what would be your most significant or valuable like learning experience since you started on this path?
1: I struggled with this question a lot when you sent it to me because I looked at it and thought to myself, I still feel like I struggle and am learning really valuable things and have to reevaluate my approach, and my materials, and the classroom mm-hmm. changes me. And then I realized that unquestionably actually, this was the year and a half I spent studying abroad at the American University in Cairo. That was the most mm. valuable thing I could have ever done and mm. probably is the reason I was able to get this far. I give full credit to the professors there for teaching me incredibly well and helping really make obvious what is not obvious in a classroom in my experience, in the classroom in the United States, that the ancient Egyptians are Egyptian, that they don't belong to me, that mm-hmm. they aren't, they did not exist to give rise to American or European culture, <laughs> That which, if you read some General textbooks, it certainly feels that way because the arc of history is written. So it goes, you know, you get Sumer, you get Egypt, and then suddenly you have medieval Europe and you're like how it's like the banner of civilization is past. To Mm. people, and we stop talking about Egypt as soon as it stops being pharaonic, and because no Mm. longer is it holding the great beacon of civilization, it just doesn't show up in books in the same way. The medieval period is devalued, modern Egypt is not discussed in a classroom that discusses ancient Egypt. But Mm. studying at AUC, particularly with Dr. Salima Akram and Dr. Faisal Haeckel just made it so obvious just living there and seeing like, a pyramid is not a thing that appears on my PowerPoint slide in a classroom when the lights are down a pyramid is a thing you see in the middle of the Egyptian desert while you're being surrounded by men on camels who are trying to sell you horrible trinkets and <laughs> Oh, gosh, wonderful stories, actually. But And you uh, took a taxi there that was driven by an Egyptian man, and you get water from a vendor there, and you go, and it's surrounded by a village of people who live there. It's mm-hmm. There's a fabric to ancient Egypt mm-hmm. which weaves into modern Egypt, and it's important to remember that the Egyptians are Egyptians. Egyptian That they are people with a history that lives on, though different and shifted and extended, but it lives on in modern Egypt. And Mm -hmm. the value of that has informed, frankly, everything I do. The value of Arabic, the value of getting back to the country and seeing the material there versus seeing material in many of our wonderful but far removed museums. I I try Mm -hmm. to get all of my kids to AUC. Um, I think it's a really, really important experience for an Egyptologist. Noted. (laughs) Yes, do it. Do it. It's wonderful.
0: So one final last question, which might be a really difficult one to conceptualize or imagine, but... Leslie, if you could answer one single question, definitively, 100% confidence in the accuracy of it, about ancient Egyptian society or history, what question would you answer?
1: Wow, you're not, you're not um, asking small questions today, are you? You're just going for it.
0: Everything's uh, bigger in Egypt.
1: <laughs> that is a truth. Whew. You know, if I only got one, just one just one i think oh lord why don't we try right now i reserve the right to change my mind to think in 15 minutes but right Fair now enough. let's say the organization of ceramic production okay I want In I want sense. to know exactly how it's not 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 and I'm not talking like did the potters make things on the wheel and when was the wheel developed not unimportant questions but questions that are much smaller I'm talking mm-hmm was a pottery workshop organized? To whom did they answer? How did they have a patron? Were they independently structured? Were they making just for themselves? Are they making for, again, a patron? And I really lean a lot on patronage, actually, with Egyptian sort of social structuring and economy mm-hmm. um, for the third through early second millenniums BC. Um,
0: it's a growing model.
1: It's a fabulous model. And I, I think it explains a lot of what's going on. I think we can see traces of it throughout the Egyptian record, but this is why I would want to look at pottery production specifically, because I think if I look at that and figure out how it's divided, how they're getting their product, how they're organized within the workshop, how they're relating to a patron or lack thereof, how they might, how the royal potters, because there certainly are potters producing stuff for royal consumption, how they might be managed. I think if I were able to get that picture it necessarily will trickle out to answer so many or inf- influence so many answers about Egyptian society. For that reason that I, I discussed earlier, the ceramic industry is fundamental to um, food and food consumption. It's fundamental to the distribution of wages. It's fundamental. it's clearly related to farming because all that grain is coming into pots. And so if I can figure out what the potters are doing I can probably sort of extrapolate structure from there into these other areas mm. of Egyptian life. And mm-hmm. right now, ceramicists, you know, we're stuck looking at pastes and fabrics and doing thin section analysis. <laughs> there, there are things we can do, but, you know, we're, we're looking at pots, and I, would, I really want to get to those people that mm. are behind it. So that would be, that's my pie in the sky thing right now, but it's really, that was my evil way of actually answering one huge question that has about 1,500 sub-questions in it. So to get around your one question, definitive question restriction.
0: I'll allow it. That was thank good. you. <laughs> yes. So that brings me to the end of my questions. So thank you very much, Leslie, for joining me on the show and talking about... All kinds of things within the Old Kingdom economy. It was really interesting, and I think we got a lot of good material there.
1: Oh, wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. It's been a delight, so thank you for having me
0: on. My deepest thanks to Leslie for joining me for this discussion. We tried for years to set this interview up, but professional and personal things got in the way, and we had to keep postponing it. But finally, the magic day arrived, and we could sit down to discuss the ancient Egyptian world. I'm looking forward to having Dr. Warden back on the show to share some of her future research and insights into the ancient Egyptian society. For now, it's time to say farewell. My thanks for your patience during this short narrative break, while I prepare the next batch of content on Akhenaten and the last phase of his reign. For now, may the gods bless you and your family, and ensure all of your endeavours meet with great success. That's it from me. I'll see you very soon. Take care. Thank you.